So the holidays are here and, you know, the beautiful snow is falling or you've got your presents and you've got your tree and your family all around. So why do you feel like crap? You've got the bah humbugs. You've got the blahs. I want to talk about that today, but I also want to talk about something that's a little bit more serious, which, of course, if you take it a step further or several steps further, you've got depression. So on the show today, Dr. Stephen Ilardi, he wrote the book, The Depression Cure, the six-step program to beat depression without, wait for it, drugs, which is, I'm very interested in that. Hello, doctor. How are you? I'm doing very well this morning. How, how are you? I'm do, you know what? I'm doing very well. There are no bah humbugs here or depression that I know of. Um, but let's let's just start with why around this time of year do some people tend to get very blue and blah? Uh, well, a couple of reasons. And, and first of all, you're absolutely right. There is a clinically significant increase in uh, serious depression around uh, right around December, January, sometimes into February. Uh, in fact, many people have probably heard of the syndrome. Um, the, the label that we give that is seasonal affective disorder uh, or uh, sometimes referred to as seasonal onset pattern depression. And there are two big reasons. Well, maybe even three reasons why that tends to occur. First, probably most importantly, we get a lot less bright light this time of year, especially a lot less natural sunlight. The days are shorter. Uh, it's cloudier in most parts of the country. It's, it's cold. People don't want to spend time outside. And the thing that many people don't realize is that natural sunlight is dramatically brighter than indoor lighting. In fact, it's, it's anywhere between 100 and 300 times brighter. This is important because we all have in the back of our eye, it's a part called the retina, specialized receptors that only fire in really bright light. So when we're sitting inside, it could be the very brightest indoor office. Those specialized light receptors, they, they just stay silent. They're dormant. They don't fire. Well, they have a broadband connection to circuits deep in the center of the brain that regulate our body clocks, which in turn help set up a regular pattern of activity in all sorts of important biological cycles that govern our hormone levels, our energy levels, our sleep, our appetite. When those circuits drift out of sync, all sorts of mayhem can spin <laughs> biologically, including, sadly, uh, for many people, the symptoms of serious clinical depression. So it's kind of a complicated picture, but hopefully that makes sense to folks that if you don't get enough bright natural light, which happens to many of us in the winter, then your body clock drifts out of sync, depressive symptoms can set in. Now, do those um, indoor lights work, you know, that you've seen on the market and, and they're supposed to like happy lights or something? Well, so and some don't, and, and I'm, I'm really glad you asked about that because technology can definitely come to our rescue there, but we have to be really savvy because there are a lot of products out there that really aren't that helpful, and there's some really good science underlying it. Here's the thing to look for. Um, based on all the research evidence we have, we need roughly 10,000 lux. That's L-U-X. It's a unit of measurement of light, 10,000 lux. If your light box says produces 10,000 lux, that's about the intensity of light that we need to reset the body clock. Now, we need it early in the morning. And by early, I mean within about an hour of waking up. Whatever your normal wake-up time is, that's when you need that big dose of bright light. We need it for anywhere between 15 and 30 minutes. If we're 
we're already feeling symptoms of winter depression, we need about 30 minutes. If we just want to make sure we don't get those symptoms, then 15 minutes usually is sufficient. But it has to be 10,000 lux. Okay. And so this sort of reprograms our body or tricks our body into thinking there's more sunlight? Well, exactly right. And if you think about it, um, evolutionarily, which most people really don't spend a lot of time thinking about, but how about this? 10,000 years ago, every single person on the planet, every human being 10,000 years ago was a hunter-gatherer, which meant essentially they were on a lifelong camping trip. They were outside 24-7, 365 days a year. What that meant was, even when they're sleeping, they're subject to the natural ebbs and flows of light. And overnight, of course, it's it's nearly pitch dark when you're outside, especially when you're outside away from civilization, no artificial light. And what happens? As dawn begins to break, uh, the intensity of light increases rather sharply. And within an hour after sunrise, it's extremely bright. What the brain has done is capitalize on these regular differences in dark and lightness, and essentially they've counted on the fact that the brain doesn't need to have a perfect Rolex-like body clock. It doesn't have to be perfectly synced, you know, 24-hour perfect time if we were locked away in a cave or something because, of course, our ancestors never were. Our ancestors Mm -hmm. were always outside. And so the brain has a very simple program. It just says, hey, when you see a big burst of bright light in the morning, reset the body clock at that point. And then all of the other biological rhythms that regulate our hormone levels and energy and sleep, they all just lock right into place. Mm -hmm. If we don't get that reset day after day after day, things start to drift dangerously out of sync. Yeah, and now sufficient sunlight exposure is one of the six things that you list, right, to to beat depression without drugs. So Absolutely, it, it, and, and the really interesting thing is, um, you know, sunlight, very bright light, or even the light we can get from an artificial light box, um, it is crucial for resetting the body clock. But recently it's been discovered that it also has, if you will, sort of independent mood-elevating properties. Uh, this, this was not understood until quite recently, but when we get that big surge of bright light, it actually causes neurochemical changes in the brain, not just in our, the circuits of the hypothalamus that, that reset our, our circadian rhythm, but it also increases activity um, in two important neurotransmitters that probably most of our listeners have heard of. One is, is serotonin and mm-hmm. the other is dopamine. Mm-hmm. So serotonin circuits, um, they, they help essentially soothe us and put the brakes on the brain's uh, runaway fight-or-flight response, our stress circuitry. And so when we get this boost in serotonin activity when we're exposed to bright light, it gives us a sort of soothing effect. Dopamine circuits give us a sense of uh, a boost of energy. They, they tend to be energizing, and they tend to be um, associated with a, an increase in, in a feeling of well-being and positive mood. Mm-hmm. So most of us, not everyone, but probably about 70 to 80% of the population, when they're looking outside or if they're spending time outside and it's really cloudy and gloomy and the clouds part and the sun comes out and it's brilliant and it's dazzling, we feel a palpable 
increase in our sense of well-being. We feel a palpable elevation in our mood, and that's due to the, the effects of light on those circuits in the brain. Oh, that's so true. Um, yesterday, I woke up. It was kind of blah. This morning, the sun is beaming off of the snow, and, you know, I'm skipping around my house to music and, and loving every minute of it. So that is very important. We're going to get to the other five in just a minute, but I want you to address a couple things. First of all, what is depression, and are there different levels of depression? Yeah, great question. Uh, well, you know, one of the things I, I, I tell my students when I'm trying to teach them about clinical depression is the word depression is, is so widely misunderstood. Um, in fact, I, I would suggest it's one of the most tragically misunderstood words in the entire English language. And the reason is we use that word, depression, in two completely different ways. It has, if you will, a common, you know, colloquial, everyday sense of, of just, you know, if, if you're standing in line at the, at the supermarket mm-hmm. and you hear the person in line behind you say, oh, you know, I'm really kind of depressed because, and then, you know, fill in the blank. And it's usually some sort of minor irritation or setback, you know, they, they, their favorite TV show was canceled or they got a parking ticket or, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. They're depressed. Well, what does that mean? It just means basically they're feeling sad. Um, and, and it's part of the human condition. Everyone feels um, depressed mood, sad mood as a natural response to, you know, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. <laughs> but but um, we also use that exact same word, depression, in a clinical context among treatment professionals as a way of describing a debilitating illness that really has very little to do with sadness per se and has a whole lot to do with changes in the functioning of the brain and body that are debilitating, that rob a person of their energy, rob them of their clear thinking, take away Mm -hmm. lots of their short-term memory and attention and concentration, their ability to love and work and play. And for many people, that debilitating illness is so painful that it actually robs them of their will to go on living. And so, you know, this leads to any any number of tragic miscon- you know, misunderstandings um, when a person comes back from their doctor, comes back from their psychologist and, and tells their friends and family, oh, you know, I, I have depression. And what people hear is often, oh, so you're sad. Well, big deal. Everybody gets sad. Oh, yeah. Has, you know, very little to do with sadness per se. Yeah, and, and tell people why this doesn't work when someone says, no, just get over it. Yeah, well, you know, it turns out to be a very well-intended piece of advice, but often um, inadvertently very cruel. Um, you know, we would never in a million years dream of if, if a friend came and said, oh, I've just been diagnosed with um, pancreatic cancer, um, you know, we wouldn't say, oh, well, come on, you know, let's cheer you up. Just get over it. I mean, mm-hmm. that would, you know, it would be ludicrous, and, and no one in their right mind would ever think of saying that. Um, and yet we say that to people with clinical depression, or at least it's, it's often said. Um, someone who's suffering from depressive illness has experienced such profound changes in the functioning of their brain and their body they're, they're suffering in a way that is often very hard to comprehend. In fact, just, just to give you a sense of, of, of 
this, the difference between everyday sadness and clinical depression. I had a patient that I, a uh, depressed patient I was working with very recently, and he had a friend who had suffered from lymphoma, a type of cancer, mm-hmm. and had also suffered from depression prior to that. Okay, so the friend had been clinically depressed, went into remission, and then got lymphoma and had to go through chemo. Mm. And, you know, all of his hair fell out, and he went, went through all the nausea and vomiting. And, okay, so he says to his friend, you know, God, I'm so, so sorry. This is, a, you know, this is a horrible thing you're having to go through. What can I do to be there for you? And, you know, how awful this must be. And the friend said, you know, um, it is, it kind of sucks to have to go through chemo. But he said, this is maybe about one-tenth as rough as when I was clinically depressed. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, that really just eloquently put into perspective the level of compassion we should feel for someone who's battling clinical depression. Dr. Lardy, how do we know when it's time to ask for help, when we need help for depression? Well, the general rule of thumb among clinicians is a person should ask for help any time the symptoms of depression are beginning to... uh, basically rob them of their ability to function in some important domain. So, for example, if the depression is interfering with their ability to work, to study, to focus, to concentrate, if it's causing them to pull away from their friends, if it's causing them to turn down opportunities to be social that they would normally accept, that's when it's time to look for help. Yeah, and I... I did battle a little bit of this, and when it got to the point where I actually found myself pulling um, hair out of my own head, <laughs> then yeah, then it then it was time. It was it was manifesting itself, and isn't that true? Depression can kind of manifest itself in different ways. Just because one person cried all the time doesn't mean that the other person that has depression they may have some other different symptom. Absolutely, it's, yeah, and, and I, that's a great point. It's something that's important to bear in mind that the illness can certainly manifest itself in different ways from one individual to the next. The common denominators, though, are depriving us of our ability to function, either socially or occupationally, causing enormous distress to the point that it might actually lead us to to begin having thoughts about death, which, of course, can not only can be terrifying, but in some cases can be lethal. And that's, by the way, that's over half of all individuals who are diagnosed with clinical depression have prominent suicidality. And then you mentioned also other medical um, types of effects, such as um, not only various aches and pains, but even things like, like causing harm to oneself. And it's not at all uncommon for someone with depression to begin hurting themselves in some way, and that, you know, whether it could involve literally pulling one's hair out, cutting oneself, burning oneself. And we actually find that in each of these cases, the pain causes the release of endorphins, which are the body's own natural opiates, and they have a very interesting property, not just of of helping to soothe or anesthetize physical pain, but also providing a temporary soothing of the emotional pain of depression. So it can become a kind of interesting short-term solution for some people seeking escape from that pain. Right. Now, if uh, my mom or dad or some relative in the family tree had depression, is it an absolute that I will end up with depression? Absolutely not. Uh, Depression does have some heritability, that is to say some genetic vulnerability that, that people can inherit, but it's remarkably low among the major forms of mental illness. Depression actually has one of the lowest 
levels of heritability. If you look at twin studies, if you look at adoption studies, what we find is that genes account for at most 25, possibly up to 30% of the story of who gets depression and who does not. And what that tells us is that the majority of cases of depression are caused by something other than genetics and, and primarily our environment, our lifestyle, the way we live, and what happens to us is the primary determinant of who gets depressed and who does not. Okay, so just because it runs in the family does not mean you're going to end up with it. Absolutely not. There no. are... In fact, there are several things that we can actually begin doing that can dramatically reduce our risk of depression. If we do have a genetic vulnerability, I have three close family members that have battled depression, and so far, uh, thank goodness, I have not myself ever suffered from the illness. Well, and let's hope that you would definitely know the warning signs. <laughs> Absolutely. (laughs) You would. Now, we spoke a little bit earlier about sunlight, um, and this refers to one of the six steps in the Depression Cure six-step program to beat depression without drugs. Let's go into the five others, because we know sunlight and getting out and getting all that, that good light into us just makes us feel better. So what are the five others? Okay, well, let's let's talk about one that has probably the most robust research support of all of them, and, and that is physical activity or exercise. What's been discovered over the past two decades of, of extraordinary research is that physical activity or exercise changes the brain. It actually changes brain chemistry more powerfully than any medication that we can take, more powerfully, in fact, than anything that we know. And uh, remarkably, physical activity, even a very low level, even something as modest as walking, walking briskly, uh, has an antidepressant effect that rivals that, in fact, exceeds that of any antidepressant medication. Yeah, so it's not like, you know, you got to go sign up at the gym and sweat for, you know, three hours at a time, five days a week. That's not what you're talking about. No, you know, and and there's often an an intimidation factor when people start thinking about exercise. Even when they just hear the word exercise, it's so daunting. It's a four-letter word for many people. (laughs) uh, We're we're recording this right around the the turn of the year. Many people have made New Year's resolutions. Um, And, of course, the vast majority of people that resolve to begin getting in shape, working out, getting fit, uh, the majority of those resolutions will eventually be broken. Why? Well, in a word, we're not designed as a species for working out. Uh, We're really not. In fact, if you think about our hunter-gatherer ancestors and compare them, in in many ways they're comparable to modern-day Aboriginal peoples, they don't ever work out just for the experience of it. Now, they're very physically active, but they're only active in the context of pursuing some sort of purposeful activity. In other Mm -hmm. words, we're, we're hardwired to expend calories, to expend effort and energy on activities that have some direct meaning and purpose to us or enjoyment. Uh, That's what our ancestors did. But unfortunately, we as a society, we've engineered most of the need for physical activity right out of our lives, and yet we still respond to those basic incentives. And so what we can do is just harness that and, and take advantage of it and think about, okay, what kinds of activities can I actually find some sort of purpose in? And, and walking is, is probably the easiest and most natural, something we can all do. Now, for it to be antidepressant, it has to be um, quite brisk walking. Walking like we're 
late for a plane at the airport, walking like we're, you know, rushing to the bus stop. Like you have a purpose. <laughs> but, yeah, it, ha- it has to be fairly vigorous, um, enough to get our heart rate up into what's known as the aerobic range. And for, for most listeners, for most adults, what we're looking for is something around 130 or so beats per minute, plus or minus about 10 beats per minute. And it's it's quite easy to learn to take one's pulse or to get a little heart rate monitor. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's been discovered is, 30 minutes of aerobic activity, brisk walking, 30 minutes, three times a week, has been found to be every bit as effective as antidepressants like Zoloft in the short term, that is to say over a three-month period, and over a six-month follow-up, exercise was found to have a rate of relapse that was three times lower than that among people who were taking antidepressants. Wow. Very powerful effective way of fighting depression and of changing the chemistry of the brain. Absolutely. And going hand in hand with exercise, let's talk a little bit about diet. Yeah, well, you know, there are several things we could say about diet, but probably the most important is that there is a specific type of fatty acid, a type of fat that used to be present in everyone's diet and that is slowly over the past century disappeared. And and this is important because, you know, many people may not realize this, but our brains are mostly made up of fat. And so, you know, if somebody calls us a fathead, they're being factually, literally correct. Our brains are mostly fat by dry weight, and there's a a critical fat uh, that our bodies cannot make for themselves. It's called omega-3s, and and many folks have been hearing about omega-3s in the news lately. What's been discovered is we are woefully deficient in this fatty acid. And when we don't have enough, our brains don't function as designed. And one of the biggest implications of this is we're much more vulnerable to depression. The good news is it's very, very simple to give our bodies, to give our brains enough omega-3s. According to over a dozen recently published research studies, omega-3 supplements in the form of, of fish oil have actually shown to, to be powerfully antidepressant. And in fact, uh, there are now trials in which omega-3 supplements have been tested head-to-head with antidepressant meds. And they're shown to, to actually change the way in which the brain functions and to have a, an effective antidepressant response. Great. And, and so we can get this in pill form and we can get it in food. Yeah, and, you know, for most people, it's going to be much easier, I think probably more effective for them to get their omega-3 supplements in pill form. Most of the patients that we've worked with and treated here in our ongoing research have been prescribed, well, and I say prescribed sort of in scare quotes because, of course, um, you know, the, the prescription simply involves them going to a local health food store, drug store, uh, Walmart, uh, what we prescribe them is simply uh, fish oil capsules that provide a, a specific form of omega-3. It's called EPA. That stands for icosapentaenoic acid, which is a mouthful. Um, mm-hmm. But on the side of the bottle, it will simply say EPA. And what we're looking for is a daily dose of EPA of 1,000 milligrams per day. Okay. And, and that's the dosage that's been shown uh, in the majority of studies to have an effective antidepressant response. Okay. Now we've got our omega-3s, our exercise, plenty of natural sunlight. Um, and what are the last two? Let's start with ample sleep because that's like almost a no-brainer. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, it really is, although, of course, um, for many Americans, this, this is a big challenge, and there are really two elements to it. One is quantity of sleep, and the other is quality of sleep, and, you know, Quantity is the easiest one because research consistently shows that the average adult still needs, believe it or not, just like your grandmother might have told you, eight hours of sleep per night for optimal health, for optimal immune function, and for optimal brain function. Um, according to most surveys, the average American adult gets somewhere uh, south of seven hours a night. And over time, what that leads to is what is referred to in the business as a sleep debt. In other words, uh, the brain keeps track of how much sleep it needs, how much it's getting, and it registers that gap in the form of drowsiness and in the form of decreased cognitive performance. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, most people, when at least that I've worked with clinically, when I talk about the need for setting aside more time for sleep, one of the first reactions is, well, you know, I, there's no way I could possibly carve out the time in my schedule. I'm so busy. I have so much to do. How could I possibly make time um, for an extra hour or an hour and a half of sleep a night? And the challenge that I typically issue is, okay, well, let's do an experiment. For a week, um, what if you set aside an actual block of time for eight hours to sleep. Let's see if, in fact, uh, you don't find that you're so much more efficient, that you get so much more done because you have more energy, because you feel better, that it will actually more than compensate for the time that you've set aside. And, and so far, I haven't had a single patient that's come back from that challenge and said, oh, you know what, um, this didn't more than pay for itself. Yeah. In the form of increased efficiency. The other issue is sleep quality. And that is, you know, for, for many individuals with depression, even if they set aside adequate time for sleep, what they'll find is, is they spend a lot of the time in bed just laying there, tossing and turning. Insomnia, in fact, is one of the core symptoms of depression. Now, fortunately, there are several things that we can do to increase the overall healthfulness and efficiency of our sleep. And as it turns out, many Americans have actually over time picked up several bad habits when it comes to their sleep. They do things like read in bed. They do things like keep all the lights on in their house at full brightness right up to the point where their head hits the pillow. Or leave a TV on in their bedroom. That's another one that's really bad. I'm sorry. They, leave a TV on in the bedroom is really bad. Oh, absolutely, yeah. In fact, you know, we had a patient very recently that not only would she leave the TV on, but on the nights when, when she would actually bring herself to turn it off, she would put on her um, iPad, uh, she, she would crank up her iPad through earbuds and fall asleep listening either to music or to a podcast. And when, when we suggested to her that she might actually benefit from taking off the, 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 the he headphones from turning off the iPad, um, she was actually dubious. And then what she discovered was um, that remarkably she was feeling much more rested um, mm -hmm. when she woke up the next morning. Well, yeah, so, because all of that outside stuff keeps the, the brain clicking even though you're trying to fall asleep. There, You know, it, it still affects what you're doing. And by the way, don't think just because you take a two-hour nap in the middle of the afternoon that you can add that time onto what you sleep at night. That doesn't you, that doesn't fly. It's eight hours well, at night. Yeah, it, it, it turns out that, that most sleep therapists and most uh, sleep experts actually advise against napping 
when it comes to reestablishing a healthy pattern of sleep at night. Napping actually has a paradoxical effect because it reduces sleep drive at night, and so it makes it much more difficult to fall asleep. Now, one last thing I would say about sleep, and that is that several of the the various elements of our treatment program have been found independently in um, in independent research to actually promote higher quality sleep at night. So, for example, exercise shifts our sleep much more strongly toward that deep restorative form of sleep known as slow wave sleep or delta wave sleep. Exercise, in a word, helps us sleep much more soundly. Mm -hmm. The same thing has been found with bright light exposure. And in fact, the more exposure we have to the very bright, high intensity light of natural sunlight or an artificial light box, the the more likely we are to have very uh, deep, restorative, restful sleep um, when when we turn in at night. Now let's talk about the sixth and final uh, step here. The book is called The Depression Cure, the six-step program to beat depression without drugs. And the sixth element is social connections. Explain that. Yeah, well, it, you know, it turns out that we're becoming increasingly isolated as a society, and this really doesn't come as any big surprise or any shock to most thoughtful observers. Just even over the past 20 years, uh, sociologists have documented a steady erosion in the quality and caliber of our social connectedness. Here, here are a few of the things that were discovered by the most recent um, demographers and epidemiologists who, who track uh, the quality of our social connection. Number one, they found that one out of four Americans have absolutely no meaningful social contact. And, wh- and the way they defined that was, if you were going through a difficult time, who would you turn to? Is there someone in your life that you could turn to for support, for encouragement? One out of four Americans say they don't have a single person in their life that would, could fill that role. One out of two Americans, 50% of Americans said, well, outside of their immediate family, they don't have a single close friend who could serve that role as an emotional confidant. What that's telling me is that we are becoming increasingly isolated and hermetically sealed off from the people uh, often that could matter to us most. And this is crucial because as a species, we are highly social, we are highly dependent on others for our sense of well-being, for a sense of safety, for a sense of support, and this increasing erosion of social connection is beginning to take a huge toll on our sense of psychological well-being. Yeah, that that does. That makes a lot of sense. So, and you know what? You don't have to be depressed to read this book. You know, all of the six steps here that you say are just ways to live a good life. You've got the omega-3 rich diet, exercise, natural sunlight, sleep social connections. I mean, this this is a way to live life in a very productive, healthy way. It's Dr. Stephen Alardi, The Depression Cure, the six-step program to beat depression without drugs. And the best way to get a hold of you and to find out more about the book would be to go to thedepressioncurebook.com, and we will have that up on our website. Dr. Alardi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Lisa. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, everybody, and thank you for choosing to be positive now.